two Bible readings this morning. Uh, The first one is from Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 12. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord uh, makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, for he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercessions for the transgressors. Our second reading is from Luke 18, verse 31 to 43. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Well, good morning again. Uh, if you need to follow or you'd like to follow along, uh, always good to have uh, your Bible open. We're going to spend most of our time this morning in that passage that Bria's just read us from uh, Luke chapter 18. 
We're continuing through our series in this part of Luke's Gospel. Uh, You'll also find the sermon outline not on the web, so don't go looking for it. It's not there, but it will appear on the screen. So I will tell you where we're going uh, at this point. So let us dive in. Now, if you know anything about me, the, actually, the problem about having a preacher like me, like any preacher, I suppose, uh, is um, you get to hear about my, my hobby horses, okay? Because uh, I get to stand up and tell you all about them. And uh, if you know anything about me, I really do enjoy getting out into the bush. Uh, some of you will have done this, uh, getting out there. You remember in the bad old days before GPS, we used to have a thing called a map and a compass, uh, and you used to try and find your way through uh, the wilderness, particularly if you're going into an area that wasn't particularly uh, well-marked tracks. And I can remember uh, many times, uh, one in particular, though, when I was in high school, where we were tracking through a place called the Wild Dog Mountains in the Blue Mountains behind Sydney, uh, and we got separated from the teacher who was in charge. So teachers, you're going to have a minor heart attack at this point. Uh, and a number of us decided that we were going to track down the ridge uh, and get separated from our group uh, and we didn't find them before nightfall Uh, and so I don't know what went through our teacher's uh, mind and his heart at that point that he'd lost I think about four uh, of his senior students. Uh, We did find him, we ended up camping about 500 metres away from each other that night but we found him very early the next morning. But the whole thing uh, about finding your way with a map and a compass is a very deliberate uh, choice to take your bearings off uh, landscape. So you get your map out and you're looking at it there and you're going, okay, that's that one. And you take your bearing and then you take that one and that one, that one, and you bring it back and you can actually find where you are. And once you've found where you are, you can then map where you're going. And so you need to find both your location and your direction. Now, life, I would like to suggest, has a lot in common with orienteering. We need to find our location as well as our direction. Now, we don't have a map and we don't have a compass. So how do we do that? Well, some of us are old enough to realise that the way you do that has actually changed. When I grew up, and if you're older than me, so if you're really from your mid-30s up, uh, no, I'm about to hit the big 5-0 this year. uh, Traditionally, how did you find your location and your direction? Well, you took your bearings off your family, your church, your community, whether that was your tribe or your city or your nation, your national identity, uh, your employment, you belonged to particular groups, you took bearings and that shaped how you lived. It was directed from outside. Now, a younger person will go, wow, that explains why all those old people are so hung up about everything. We do it differently. That's the traditional way, but the modern way is different, isn't it? How do you find your location and your direction? Well, you're told you need to find it inside yourself. It's, it's connected to what you feel. And so it's up to you. You don't take your bearings off your family or your church or your community. You take, you take whatever bearing you want and you choose your own way. Now, can I say I'm not advocating the traditional model, but I'm not sure I'm convinced by the modern model either. Model either. 
But Jesus gives us a third option. Jesus, for the Christian, he is the point around which we orient our life. He is the one who gives us both our location and our direction. And so this morning, we're going to do a little bit of an eye check. Because it's important when you're taking your bearings that you actually make sure you get the right thing. One of the killers when you're orienteering is when the fog comes in. You ever done that? Has anyone been in that experience? And, and you'd love to be able to see a landmark that you can actually take your bearing off. But you can only see about five metres and so you're hoping that this is generally the right way to go. Jesus, if he is our landmark... If he's the one against whom we find our location and our direction in life, we actually have to do ourselves a little bit of an eye test. We have to ask ourselves, do we see Jesus? And is the Jesus that we see the real Jesus and the whole Jesus? Because if we get this wrong, if we take our bearings off the wrong landmark, our whole life ends up skewed. Now, I've got three points for you this morning. There they are. The blindness of the sighted, the sight of the blind, and then we're going to... Uh, I initially had check your vision. I've got in my notes, check your bearing, so you can decide which one you want there, okay? It doesn't really matter. Let's talk about the blindness of the sighted. Now, we read about Jesus this morning. He's on the road to Jerusalem. And this is a journey that in Luke's gospel goes all the way back to chapter 9. Chapter 9, Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, he identifies Jesus. He says, you are the Christ. You are God's king. And at that point, Jesus starts heading from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem in the south. It actually tells us in Luke 9, chapter, uh, verse 51, that at that time, Jesus set his face for Jerusalem and he is almost there. Jericho uh, is about 10 kilometers away from Jerusalem. So it's like the CBD. It's not that far away. Jesus is almost on the doorstep and he wants the disciples to know what is happening. He wants them to get there and have no real surprises because surprises aren't always a good thing, are they? We kind of like surprise birthday parties, perhaps, but there are other surprises in life that don't go as well. I can remember a youth leader uh, way back in ancient history for me. He used to take our youth group caving and I wasn't there, uh, but I heard this story uh, where one, there was one situation in a cave where uh, what you did, and I'll tell you up front, is you slid down an incline and then there was a short drop. Uh, and uh, then the ground was there, not that far, probably, you know, the kind of height of the stage. Um, but it's pitch black. Okay, and so uh, the, there's this slide, you go down the slide, and uh, about halfway down as one of the kids is going down, Ken starts screaming at him, no, 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 and the kid's, Ooh! and he goes off the edge and he hits the ground. <laughs> Absolute heart attack material. Uh, I think it would kill me if he'd done that to me. 
But Jesus doesn't want a surprise like that when the disciples get to Jerusalem. So he warns them. He tells them this. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Jesus gives them the heads up. He's saying what is going to happen and why it's going to happen. He says, the prophets have told you the Old Testament, and Bree read for us from Isaiah 53, the Old Testament said this is going to happen, and now I am telling you, so when it happens, you know this is not a mistake. This is God's plan and purpose. Because what we see in the Old Testament, when God's promise comes through the prophets about his king, is that there are two distinct pictures of what that king will be like. One is the victorious king, and the other is the suffering servant. Bree read to us from Isaiah 53, a passage that speaks of the suffering servant. The one who would come and lay down his life. But those two images are not contradictory. In Christ, the victorious king, his victory is won through the cross, through his suffering and death and resurrection. Jesus brings those two threads of the Old Testament prophecy, the victorious king and the suffering servant. He brings them together. Now, I'd like to suggest that Jesus was a pretty good communicator. Yes, you'd like to think the Son of God could get things straight. But then we read this in verse 34. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Now, go back to what he said. Was it difficult to understand? You know, what is the deal with the disciples? Why are they so thick? Why are they there saying, I don't get this? Now, can I suggest that it is not that they are thick. It's just that they are spiritually blind. They had a grid through which they saw Jesus. And that grid had no room for the suffering servant. They had a picture of the Old Testament promises that was all about the victorious king. They saw that, but they could not comprehend that God's king would go to the cross. You actually see this in just a few verses in chapter 19. Jesus tells them a parable because they still don't get it. But he introduces the, Luke introduces the parable like this. He said, well, I was still listening. Uh, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He tells them this very explicit promise. This is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be mocked, spat upon, beaten, killed. And then I'm going to rise. And they just don't get it. Because they have a picture of Jesus that cannot comprehend the suffering 
servant. I imagine if you actually did a little quiz after Jesus telling them this, what did Jesus say? I imagine they could repeat the words back. What does it mean? They haven't got the faintest idea. And Luke underlines this for us. He says, the disciples did not understand any of this. Okay, in case you missed it, its meaning was hidden from them. In case you missed it, and they did not know what he was talking about. Luke three times tells us they have absolutely no idea. Absolutely no idea. Now these are 12 people that Jesus has picked by hand. And they have been with him at this point for years. They have seen him in action. They have heard his teaching. And they still don't get it. Could we be the same? Because we are a product of our environment. We see things in a very shaped way. They were products of their environment that said, God's king doesn't suffer. Could we have twisted Jesus so much that what we see is not the real Jesus? We are not neutral. We are not objective. There are psychologists among us will tell us there's a thing called confirmation bias. Has anyone heard of confirmation bias? Okay, it's a thing where basically you look for what you want to see. And they've tested it on the most objective people in the world, the scientists, where they give them a set of data that contradicts their, their pre-held belief. So I believe this, but I've got data that contradicts it. Do you know what they tend to do? They tend to twist the data to support what they already have. And I'm not just having a dig at the scientists, because we all do it. When there is emotion involved, when there is skin in the game, when it confronts deeply held beliefs, the confirmation bias is really, really intense. We want to see something so we see it, or we don't want to see something so we won't. The disciples, we see that there, but could it be the same for us? The atheist writer of uh, a classic bit of dystopian fiction, you know, he was trendy before Hunger Games and all this, a guy called Aldous Huxley wrote Brave New World. Has anyone read Brave New World? Okay. Huxley was no friend of Christians, but he was honest enough to acknowledge this. He said, most ignorance is vincible. Now, vincible is not a word we use, but think invincible is the opposite. So invincible, you can't overcome it. Vincible, you can overcome it. Most ignorance is vincible ignorance. We don't know because we don't want to know. Interesting, isn't it? And the Bible will tell us that behind our not necessarily perhaps wanting to see Jesus is our sinful desire to actually shut God out. We have a grid, but sin twists that grid. 
And so even though we might say, oh, yeah, I want to see Jesus. If we see Jesus, he will shatter that grid. And so we twist things. And that shapes our perception. We all have this grid. You have it. I have it. And it really lets you do really weird things. Let me give you an illustration of just how weird. Go on the net, you'll find things. Okay, some people have a grid that lets them see that Jesus might appear on their iron. Okay? Or maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus isn't on your iron. I don't know what Jesus on your iron does. Uh, but this lady was convinced that Jesus on her iron made a big difference in her life. Okay? Or, or maybe you find Mary in a water drip. Okay? Or maybe you find Mary, like they did in Sydney, in a fence post. Okay? That's in Coogee. People set up a shrine to Mary because that's what happens. And you kind of think, could we be doing that? I don't see Jesus in an iron or Mary in a fence post, but like, really? Could we perhaps be just blind to Jesus? I heard a story, a true story of a man in his 80s who had been in church his whole life and there was a kid's talk that explained the gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection of Christ and that man was converted at that moment. Don't think it can't happen. Don't think that we have got it all right. This man had been in church with Jesus like the disciples for years but had never truly seen him. So what do we do? Brings us to our next point, the sight of the blind. Perhaps. <laughs> oh, there we go. Okay. Okay. The next encounter that Matt and uh, Josh and uh, Avery and Taryn, thank you, Taryn. Did you get any of the chocolate? No, nothing. Oh, there is no justice in this world, is there? Two donuts. You'll have her donut. Okay. And then you'll have to go for about a 20-kilometre run uh, to pay for those donuts. Anyway, uh, it's a familiar story. If you look at Mark's gospel, we actually know this guy's name. His name's Bartimaeus. Okay, you may have heard of Bartimaeus. And he is a blind man, but a blind man who truly sees. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he had heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, those who went, who led the way, rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. This blind man sees Jesus. He knows who he is. Jesus, son of David. He knows that he is God's promised king. He knows Jesus' heart. Have mercy on me. And he knows what Jesus can do. Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see. And then we read in the next couple of verses. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Literally here, like with the ten lepers and the Samaritan leper, 
Jesus actually says, your faith has saved you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. This man knows that Jesus alone can give him what he needs. And in that, he is a model for us. This is the human condition. We are blind by sin to the divine realities. We are blind to God and to his king, which means that by ourselves, we cannot find where we are and where we should go. We are lost. We cannot see without his grace. And we don't want to. John Calvin, the the, the reformer from back in the 1500s, said this. He said, it's certain that man, sorry, he wrote before PC language, so forgive him that. It's certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating God to scrutinize himself. We always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us. Unless by clear proofs we stand convicted or convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly and impurity. What's Calvin saying? He says, if you look at God, you'll realize just how far short you fall. It's like... um, Every now and again, I go for a run. I kind of like running. Uh, I've got myself to that stage that I can run 10K and so forth. And, and I convince myself that I'm actually not a bad runner. Until I, um, he's not here this morning, so I'm going to name him and shame him. Until I run next to Cadeau. Okay, does anyone, anyone know Cadeau? Okay, I, I was two seconds off my personal best yesterday at the park run at Brighton and no one else turned up to run with me, okay? Shame on you, Ethan Keane. Uh, yeah, okay. But, so I'm there, 24 minutes, 37 seconds. You know what Cadeau runs that in? 18 minutes. That's six and a half minutes faster than me. Like, that, that he's finishing over five kilometers, more than a kilometer ahead of me. So I can, I can have my illusion that I'm a good runner until I look at Cadeau. And Cadeau isn't always the fastest runner at the, at the race. Give you something. It's, just, it's like that with God. We can actually convince ourselves, and Calvin points this out to us, we can convince ourselves that we're actually okay. Until we look at God until we look at his king. And if we do that, we see ourselves as we truly are. And we don't like that. We don't want to do that. But can I say, we must do that. Our problem is that we are like the rich man in the story that we looked at last week, who came to Jesus thinking he had lots to offer. But... We have more in common with the blind man who has nothing to offer other than his desperation and his desperate need. Remember the old hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, 
Simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. We sing it. I don't know if we believe it. But when we see God, when we see Christ, we do believe it because we must believe it because it shows us in our desperate need. This is the scandal of grace. It says, you may be the most upright person here. You may tick all the boxes. You may keep all the rules. And you are just as much in need as the worst sinner. You may be the Pharisee that Matt preached to us about that stands up and says, I tick all the boxes, I keep all the rules, I fast twice a week, I tithe, I give generously, I serve, I, I, I. And there is no difference between you and the tax collector who says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. The difference is, Jesus tells us in that parable, it's the tax collector that went home right with God, not the Pharisee. That's the scandal of grace. Do we see our need that apart from Christ saying to us, receive your sight, your faith has saved you, despite, I'll get the word one day, If Jesus doesn't open our eyes, if his grace doesn't let us see him for who he truly is, if his spirit doesn't work in us to bring us to a true understanding of himself and what he has done and so ourselves, we are lost. So what do we do? We need to check our vision. I want to ask you this morning, can you see? Maybe you've sat here for a long time. Maybe you're familiar with Christian stuff. You've been to church. Can you see? Those 12 men with Jesus, they didn't get it. They just couldn't comprehend that God would do that. And I've seen Christians, people who call themselves Christians, say, oh, well, God would never ask me to do that. They don't get it because they don't understand grace. They've put God in a box and they try to control him. Jesus warns us, this is from John's gospel, John chapter 9. He said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Jesus warns us. If we are the blind, Lord, I want to receive my sight, he answers that prayer. But if we are convinced that actually we've got it okay, our guilt remains. So how would you know? How would you know? I want to tease this out for us a little bit before giving you uh, some ways that you could sharpen your vision. Does Jesus leave you unchallenged? That's the first. 
Do you pick up your Bible perhaps and read? And you're comfortable. You come along to church and you hear Jesus read from Scripture. You sing about him. You hear him preached. And he leaves you unchallenged. Or maybe, maybe he just leaves you a bit confused. And so you kind of take the bits you like and you leave those other bits across the side. Well, I don't really get that. So I'm quite happy with this bit. Does Jesus leave us unchallenged? Because can I suggest that if you have a Jesus that never busts your grid, that never breaks out of the box that you have put him in, you probably haven't got the real Jesus. I've been a Christian since my early teenage years, and as I said, I turned 50 in the middle of this year. Jesus constantly pushes me further. Jesus constantly challenges me that my view of him and what he has done and what he calls me to is not sufficient. If Jesus leaves us unchallenged, you haven't got the right Jesus. If Jesus leaves you uncalled, remember the story of the rich man. The rich man says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, eventually, give up everything and come and follow me. The blind man, he comes to Christ. Christ heals him. He gives him his vision back. What's his immediate response? He follows him. To follow Jesus is to become his disciple. Does Jesus leave us where we are? Does Jesus never call us to become something else, to go somewhere else, to serve somewhere else? Do we hear Jesus? Do we see Jesus? And he's, he, we're happy just to sit there on the side of the road. He never calls you to a greater obedience. He never calls you to show your love for him more. We see no tension between our plans and his plans. His job is to fit in with us. Does Jesus leave us uncalled? Because if he does, we haven't got the real Jesus. Because Jesus says... To each and every person who would be his disciple, come and follow me. Lastly, does Jesus leave us unmoved? What's the blind man's response? He follows Jesus and he praises God. And the people around, the people who'd been telling him, I assume, shut up! Don't disturb Jesus, but they see the miracle. They see the man healed. They see God's saving power just in that glimpse. That saving power that came at the fullness of the cross. And they praise God. Now, one of the funny things I find about uh, Anglos, I'm going to pick on Anglos because I am one, okay? Okay. Um, we're, we're not an emotional people. 
you know, I, I, am I right? Okay, let's look at the Anglos. You're all looking very serious at me, okay? Uh, and being in the kind of reformed evangelical Anglo camp means we're probably even more restrained because we're, we're conservative people naturally. So, um, you know, this is about as expressive as we get while singing. Uh, you get that? Okay. Look, I'm standing up. What more could you want? Okay. It's like the Guinness ad, uh, you know, I'm praising on the inside. And maybe you are. Okay. I don't want to be too, like waving your hands around doesn't mean that you're praising God. You can wave your hands around because you want everyone to look at you and go, oh, they're so full on, they're waving their hands around. But do you ever find yourself moved to worship? Do you find yourself moved to repentance? Do you find yourself moved to just give thanks to God for his goodness to you? The crowd, the man, they praise God. Do we? Or does our Jesus leave us unmoved? Like he's an intellectual puzzle that we can solve, but it never makes the jump from here to here. Because brothers and sisters, if that's, if that's the Jesus that you have, one that doesn't challenge you, one that doesn't call you, one that doesn't move you, can I say that's a, that's not the real Jesus. So how do you sharpen your vision? Just three points really quickly. Never assume. Never assume you've got 2020 vision. I think it's important for us to recognize that Christianity is not a body of knowledge that we master, but it's a relationship in which we live. And you wouldn't say to your friend, your spouse, I've got you. I know everything there is. I've been married for 28 years, coming up this year. Okay. Uh, I would never presume to say that I know everything about my wife. I would like to suggest that the knowledge I have is a true knowledge, but there is still more that I can know. And through the work of the Spirit and the Word of God, we can know God truly, but we should never say, I've got you. I, I, I've, I understand you perfectly. I could predict your next move. We need to know we should never assume 2020 spiritual vision. We need God's grace daily. That's why we get Kenny up here. That's why we get Grace up here. That's why we got Rob up here. Uh, and one more that I'm... Julie. Thank you, Julie. Sorry. That's called a senior's moment. I can claim that now. When I'm not 30, I'm 50. So anyway. But that is there just to say, well, let's keep on going back into God's word. Keep on saying, do I know God? Never assume 2020 spiritual vision. Prayerfully sit under God's word. Thank you, Kenny, for your word to us this morning. Praying works in that spiritual realm, asking God that we might see him. Do you remember what happened on the Damascus Road for Paul? He sees a vision of Jesus. He is struck blind. Ananias comes in, prays for him, and the scales fall from his eyes. We have scales that come across every day. 
We need God's help to take those so that we would see him truly in his word. And Kenny, it's like you've looked at my sermon notes, brother. Learn with others, learn from others. One of the best things you can do is stand with another and say, how do you see Jesus? What have you learned from Jesus? What have you learned of God and his goodness and his grace? Be with others. Let them sharpen your vision. Read good books. People from different times, different cultures, different places. Learn to see the riches of this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who calls us to come and follow. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would be by your spirit at work in our hearts, that we might truly know you. Father, where we've brought in wrong ideas, where we've brought in sinful independence, Lord, take those things away from us. When we think we have everything under control, Lord, bring us to humility recognizing our need for your grace each and every day for dependence upon your spirit that we might know you truly. Lord, do a work in our lives. Take the scales from our eyes and from our hearts that we might truly know, truly respond and truly praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.